If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew, Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28, reading in, beginning in verse 1. It says this, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, and afraid yet filled with joy, they ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them, saying, Greetings. They came to him, clasped his feet, And worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, would ask your blessing upon this Easter Sunday that what would transpire this morning would somehow rise above the level of mundane or routine that it would somehow rightly be commensurated as uh, worship, as, as family business, as you working with your people. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would work in our lives, you would speak to us in a way only you can, and that in some strange way we would walk out of here changed. And we humbly pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. There, uh, there's an interesting thing about sports and spectator sports and this idea of what a, a spectator is. I, I've thought a lot about this because uh, once upon a time I logged, I think, uh, one million hours of watching SportsCenter. And so in all of that, in, in the reruns from you know, 8 a.m. all the way through like 1 p.m., you, you think about what it means to be a spectator, I think, as a guy. And uh, there are different spectator sports. Some are better than others. Uh, I, I used to play baseball, but baseball is not a great spectator sport. Uh, it's my conviction. Um, fast-moving sports, uh, because they're entertaining. They're good spectator sports. And if you get to a level of skill, um, almost anything, any sport can become a spectator sport. Uh, The Masters can become a spectator sport. I mean, it's golf, right? Uh, I mean, the loudest you clap is like this, but it's still a good spectator sport if it's a high level of skill. Um, Table tennis, if you're watching the really, really good people, see, that too can be a great spectator sport. Uh, there are other things that 
we kind of get our categories wrong and we try and make them spectator sports, but they're not great spectator sports. Uh, I grew up uh, for a number of years in Northern Virginia and kind of became fascinated with the Civil War. Civil War is a really fascinating deal. Uh, and one of the kind of first battles and, and most significant battles in the Civil War happened in Northern Virginia um, at a place called uh, Manassas or Bull Run. Or um, now I'm, I'm mixing names. Battle, which one am I thinking of? Bull, what? Not Manassas. Was it Manassas? I know they're the same thing. The north uses the city. The south uses the river. But for some reason, um, after five cups of back porch, my mind's buzzing. Um, and details are foggy. But so the Battle of Manassas, so there's two of them. The first Battle of Manassas, second Battle of Manassas. And you, you might hear about it, Bull Run. First Battle of Bull Run, second Battle of Bull Run. But the first one is way early in the Civil War. And since it's kind of in northern Virginia, just a ways outside of D.C., you get an interesting thing happening where a bunch of, of people decide to kind of turn it into a spectator sport. So the war is early on. Everyone thinks it's going to be a short war, that we're just going to, the north is just going to rout the south. And, and here they're going to kind of join this battle, uh, Battle of Manassas. And, and so everybody gets in their carriages and it's kind of like a Sunday stroll down the road to go um, be spectators. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, do we watch John Wayne or Shirley Temple reruns after church? Or, or do we go watch a war? You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's kind of funny like that. But So they go down, and, and it turns out that the Civil War, the battles, were not great spectator sport. Um, every, you know, it turns into this crazy thing that the South ends up turning it, and, and all of a sudden you got all these buggies flying back to Washington um, super scared. So the Civil War, as far as spectator sports go, turned out not to be a good one. Um, why do I bring that up? Because when we begin to switch categories, there's a phenomenon out there where we, we kind of begin to make Easter... A spectator sport. Um, you know what I'm talking about? We begin to turn Easter Sunday in America into a spectator sport. And so in doing so, what's really interesting um, is that church leadership begins to recognize it and then um, kind of harmonize with it. So there are actually churches out there that were giving away free iPads or free flat screens to the first however many people showed up on Easter Sunday. Honestly, I actually Googled around to see if one of them was in Bend because I was going to skip Antioch. And <laughs> you guys are great and all, but I was going to go get me a TV. There's none of them in, in, in Bend. Um, but so churches will actually play to it. Well, people are coming in kind of as spectators, um, so we'll just kind of cater to that. This is the most attended Sunday in America um, for church attendance. Uh, all other Sundays of, of the year, the conversation will be about how the church in America is in decline, that, that people are leaving the church in record numbers, but this Sunday is the one Sunday when church wins. Church wins out um, because it's kind of a cultural thing. 
And as I began to wrestle with that more and more, it began to bother me because something really funky is going on here. Uh, we, I think we woke up years ago, a number of years ago to the consumer implications of Christmas, that Christmas in America has so many consumeristic uh, overtones. The economy is tied to it. We, we think more of money and spending and getting and having, and we get wrapped up in the consumer nature of Christmas. So I think we woke up to this years ago, and there's things uh, like Imago Day and their Advent conspiracy and, and lots of other churches around the country that say, you know, this is when Christ came in weakness to kind of challenge the ways of the world and, and the authorities of the world. And it's this grand conspiracy of what God is doing. And this is the heart of what's going on. And, and so in some sense, the whole Saks Fifth Avenue and, and perfumes and decorations starting before a Halloween. And, you know, I mean, that whole craze, it doesn't really fit, at least not religiously. I think we woke up to that with Christmas a while ago. And so what was interesting to me wrestling about Easter was beginning to really feel like maybe we're so mired in, in something with regard to Easter, fluffy, happy, joyful, warm, fuzzy, entertainment, experiential kind of Christianity that we're giving Easter a pass. What I mean by giving it a pass is we're going to think critically about Christmas and say that the way that culturally we engage with it might not be the right way. But with Easter, we give it a pass. We don't think critically of it. My wife and I had a conversation last night about um, whether to put out these gift baskets this morning. I mean, think about it. What's the purpose of putting out a gift basket on Easter morning? See, that's my point. See, there's no point. So, I mean, it's, it, is it a stocking? Is it like a stocking? I mean, Christmas, I mean, it's not, so it's like an Easter version of Christmas? Or like, what's it tied to? What's driving it? What, what is it teaching our kids? There's a, a book, I just saw a book, or, or someone in the church actually just sent me an article yesterday about uh, are we getting what we paid for with the way we're raising our kids? By trying so hard to make their life perfect and to fill them with such confidence and self-esteem that maybe the unwanted byproduct is that we're creating narcissistic human beings that arrive at adulthood with their image of what they ought to be so far different from what they realize they really are that they walk around half the time insecure because they can't meet the standard of what they've been coached into. The other half walking around entitled and bitter against anyone who won't treat them like the royalty that they are. And, I'm, and so the conversation last night, should we do Easter gift baskets? And so, I mean, I really began to wrestle with this. And I started thinking about, have we turned Easter into a spectator sport? And then I realized, we haven't turned it into a spectator sport. If it was a sport, the guys would be dressing themselves. <laughs> I'm serious. You go to a sport, 
guys dress themselves. You know, um, jerseys, hats. You know what I'm talking about? They, I mean, you guys know what to wear to sporting events. But how many of you were dressed by your wife this morning? <laughs> Guy Gleason. <laughs> it, this isn't even a spectator. See, this is less than a sport. This is what I began to realize. This is cultural obligation at its worst. What I mean by cultural obligation at its worst is this is one of those times when, when you're duty-bound to include in-laws. You're duty-bound to have meals and to to not choose of all the options that are before you what you want to do, but to do the right thing and to submit to what is culturally expected for you to do. It's less than a sporting event. And because of that, because it's go to lunch with the in-laws level, and you're dressed in clothes that you didn't pick and you didn't choose, this is what kind of sermon I'm supposed to give. I'm supposed to give a happy, warm, fuzzy, relational sermon so that you will walk out of here and go to your meals and have a warm, fuzzy, relational uh, family gathering and you will go home from that gathering and think, wasn't this a wonderful Easter Sunday? Why? Because it fit the archetype of what an Easter Sunday should be, namely, happy, relational, family, warm, and everybody did what they were supposed to do event. You know what I'm, ta- you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, there, there might be time to get to that church giving away a TV. I, if, I hurry now, if I hurry now, I can make it. Uh, maybe they're like, they got door prizes, like Xboxes or something like that. All right. So you guys are wondering where we're at. So am I. So that's okay. Here's what Kierkegaard said. The moment I take Christianity as a doctrine and so indulge my cleverness or profundity or my eloquence or my imaginative powers in depicting it, people are very pleased. I'm looked upon as a serious Christian. And the moment I begin to express existentially what I say, meaning the moment I begin to live it out and consequently to bring Christianity into reality, It is just as though I had exploded existence. The scandal is there at once. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me if you would. First Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 1, says this. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom or iPads. 
as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So here's the dilemma for me. I can preach a warm, fuzzy Easter sermon because that's what's expected of me. And church will win on Easter Sunday like it does every year. And it will lose the Sunday after Easter like it does every year. Do you know the least attended Sunday in churches in America? You guys are smart enough to guess because I kind of just gave it away. The week after Easter. Your system is designed to give you exactly the results that you're getting. If we're going to preach Easter as if it's a wonderful thing to give us a holiday or a tradition or an experience then that's exactly the result we should look for, is that people are going to have a wonderful tradition, a great family memory, warm fuzzies, and, and a great experience. But we shouldn't look for lives to be transformed by the power of God demonstrated in the resurrection of His Son from the dead that transforms and alters every paradigm because we're talking about the resurrection of the dead, that we don't have to fear death anymore, that death has been swallowed up somehow in the resurrection of Jesus, that our life and our narcissism and our self-focus and that emptiness and that gnawing ache can somehow just be set aside because there's a new way and a new life that we get to choose because of the resurrection of Jesus. That on Easter Sunday, we can come to it with a paradigm that says, the grave is empty. So we don't have to pursue emptiness anymore. What is vanity to us anymore? Does that make sense? So I started wondering, what if we preached Easter the way Paul preached Easter? And then I started getting really scared. And so let me talk about it in the third person. Anyone ever watch Seinfeld? Remember when George started talking about himself in the third person? It's like, I don't know. I'm going to preach in the third person because then I, don't, I can avoid responsibility and it's easier. Um, so I was in Ephesus recently. Paul went to Ephesus. It's a really fascinating thing in Ephesus. Um, you had Artemis, the goddess Artemis was who they worshipped in Ephesus. They were the primary center. For, we're gonna, by the way, we're going to talk about Ephesus next week. We're starting a new series uh, from the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, the first one to Ephesus. We're going to talk about it next week. But Ephesus is the fourth largest city 
in the whole Roman Empire at this time, Artemis is what they're known for. I mean, it's, it's, what, um, it's what they're known for. You know when you go to airports, you can tell what a city is known for by, by the airport? Um, you know, you, you walk in, you can see what their sports team is, what the local food is. You know, you go to San Francisco, there's going to be a sourdough store somewhere in the airport. You, you know what cities are known for by the commerce. Uh, Ephesus was known for is one, a huge city, one of the fourth largest cities. So you have all these travelers, all these pilgrims that come to this city, uh, tourism in the ancient world. They're known for Artemis, so you sell a lot of Artemis, little, little statues, little goddesses, little idols of the goddess Artemis. You go to any tourist place, and you're going to see the same thing. You can go to the third world, and you'll see little shops uh, along the side of the road. You go to Athens, and you, you, you walk around the Acropolis, you'll see little shops that, that have little figurines and ancient s- statues. And you go to Florence, and you're going to see little statues of uh, Michelangelo's David. Anywhere you go in the world where there's a spot that somewhere is known for, right near that spot, there's going to be a lot of people with shops set up Selling the thing that goes to the thing. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's just, it's, it exists anywhere you go. Paul shows up and starts saying, yeah, Artemis, um, yeah, it's, it's dead, actually. It doesn't really, it doesn't really go. Uh, let me actually tell you what does go. Jesus died and rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where all authority has been given to him. He is Lord of all. And in him, through faith in him, we get to have a new life and the promise of resurrection. And he starts preaching this. What happens? It affects commerce. So you got all these, you got this whole thriving industry. I mean, we could, we could go in so many different directions right now. I was talking to a guy this week that was in the defense industry, uh, for years and years as a part of a think tank to re-envision um, aspects of the military to save money, you know, to, to dovetail the, the different departments, uh, to uh, remove inefficiencies, and, and to basically optimize the system, the, the war machine system. And they had, you know, all this money put into their think tank for all these years. They came up with these amazing solutions. And then when the solutions started to come out, you had contracts out there from, from private sectors for things that would basically disappear if, if this is taken into account. And then budget money from Congress that's tied. You know, and so what happens? All of a sudden it gets political in a hurry, right? We, we see when commerce gets affected, well, we see this everywhere. When commerce gets affected, there's pushback, right? So Paul starts preaching the cross, the resurrection, and it affects commerce. It gets to such a point where the town comes into an uproar. We're going to show pictures of it next week. They go to the stadium, and there's tens of thousands of people clamoring 
to where the magistrate comes freaking out because this is an unlawful gathering and the Romans, if they hear about it, are going are gonna to think there's a riot going on in Ephesus. And Paul, what does Paul want to do? Let me go talk to him. And they're like, Paul, what, what you? no, you're not going to go talk to him. Ah, oh, no, let me, go, let me go reason with him. Paul, they're going to rip your arms out. You cannot go talk to him. So they, they go and hide Paul. Um, because they're like, you can't go talk to these people. These people literally will kill you because you've so turned their world upside down, the whole commerce of their city upside down. Um, This is the story of Ephesus. This is Paul preaching the gospel, preaching resurrection. Jesus walks in on Passover. What does he do when he hits Jerusalem on Passover? He came to Passover a couple times. In his ministry. Heads right to the temple courts and begins throwing tables upside down. Flat screens, iPads. He begins throwing the tables upside down because they had turned the whole thing into a tradition and a system and an, and a, and an economy and a whole way of doing things, and they, they turned it into consumerism. And they'd begun putting out decorations before Halloween, and they'd begun um, hanging in the stockings, and they'd begun, the whole religious thing had begun to be so driven by the, the economy of it all that in the middle of it, God and his presence was getting missed, and the people, the, the, the people on the fringe were getting kept away um, because it was the, the court of the Gentiles where, where all these shops were getting set up. So not only is it obscuring God, but it's actually keeping people at bay. And, and this whole thing's going on. Jesus would come to the Passover and he'd march in there and, and with grown men. I mean, you ever try to separate a grown man from his money? I haven't. Because I'm afraid of what my, you know, I mean, you don't. Jesus is throwing over and driving these people out of the temple. So, third person. Ken, what would it look like if you preached the resurrection? What would it look like if you preached Easter? I don't, I don't think it would be warm fuzzies and give a squeeze or a hug at, at lunch. Now, it's not that squeezing a hug at lunch is bad at all. But this isn't an entertainment program. This isn't a spectator sport. The offer of resurrection is an offer of initiation, not an offer of entertainment. We come on Easter not to experience stuff, religious stuff, be partakers of religious goods and wrapped up in a religious economy and a religious system. And we come for the scandal of it and we're invited to an initiation. Let me read a little bit further. If you... you, We're tracking with me in Matthew. We read about the resurrection. Go back to Matthew 28. Just down a couple verses. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. 
This is kind of the second half, the other side to the coin of resurrection. It says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So ends the gospel according to Matthew. If church is entertainment, it puts me in a really interesting situation. Uh, we took the kids to see Mirror Mirror this week. It's like the retelling of Snow White. You know what I'm talking about? And then Tam and I watched on video Three Musketeers last night. There's a really interesting trend in movies these days. Uh, see if, you, see if, if you've picked this up too. It's trying to tweak age-old stories to make them more entertaining. In Snow White, it's a really interesting thing. you got Snow White, who's virtuous. It's wonderful. She's got great character. But at the end, it ends with her, the witch comes to the ball, tries to give her the apple. She, she's so smart, she doesn't take a bite of the apple. She's not naive like the old Snow White was, you know. She sees... She sees through the ruse of the witch, cuts a bite of the apple, and sticks it in the witch's face, and then says to her, you need to know when you've been beat. She basically taunts. Like if there was a referee in the movie, uh, yellow flag taunting, Snow White. <laughs> like, kick it over. You know what I mean? Like, the movie ends with this, like, 18-year-old actress playing Snow White taunting the, 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 the witch lady, like, because the witch had said to her earlier on in the movie, like, you need to know when you've been beat, you know. And so here, here she just throws it in her face, and that's like how the movie's going to end, you know. And I'm like, this is so my generation. Like, Snow White now, like, you know, throws down the witch and does a dance on her, you know, and taunting, you know. And, like, they just took it up a notch by making it that much more entertaining because they just had Snow White rub it in her face, like, that's amazing. So then we're watching uh, Three Musketeers. This is set in the 1600s. It even says so in the movie, right? Set in the 1600s. And they've, they have these, this flying ship that they create in this movie. And, and I'm like, really? Flying ship? It's like a balloon with a full-on ship that weighs a gazillion tons, you know, flying around. And I'm like, really, you know? And, and there's a lot of other things like, the, you know, the army of King Louis XIII or whatever looks like a million people in full-on uniforms. And I'm like, really? You know, like, it's, I doubt it. You know, but okay. And, but I keep looking at the flying ship, and I'm like, that's an interesting twist. You know, like, um, I don't think so in the 1600s, you know. Then at the end of the movie, it's like the, the movie ends with the guy from England who got beat. You know, and it's like, here's the taunting thing again. But it ends with him coming across the English Channel because they're going to attack France. And I don't know if it's like maybe we'll do a sequel to Three Musketeers and we may or may not bring Orlando Bloom back. I don't know. You know, I mean, that's, 
every sequel, they, they evaluate Orlando Bloom. The, but, but then they pan out, and not only is there one flying ship, it's now like the movie Troy where there's like a gazillion boats, but there's like 500 flying ships. And it's still the 1600s. And I'm like, would they build these in a week? You know, like it, but they are upping the entertainment value. Do you see my problem here? What am I supposed to do with the resurrection if, I, if I'm caught in an entertainment paradigm? I mean, I, you know, how do I make it more entertainment? Is, is Jesus supposed to pop out of the grave and then like taunt? You know what I mean? Like, like, like dunk it in everyone's face and, like, and, then, and then do a dance, you know, and brush his jersey? And you know what I'm saying? Like, how are you supposed to tell that story so that it, it becomes more and more entertaining? He's got a, you know, chip that flies. And everybody gets a flying, I don't, you know, I don't know. This is an oral culture. For most of the history of the world has been an oral culture. And this story would be retold verbally. And it would be retold verbally and the whole narrative of God would be retold so that this is not just an isolated event, but it's, it is a, basically the climax of what God has been doing and prophesying all throughout this scarlet thread of redemption in Scripture. And it would be told, and as people are walking on pilgrimages or to church or wherever they're going, instead of getting gift baskets, they're talking about the story of what God has always been about, that he is a God who saves, he's a God who redeems, he's a God who loves us, and that this is this wonderful outworking, and that that we get to rejoice in it, because once that resurrection happened, all that had been promised was now made good on, and once it's made good on, it's done. That's why Jesus said, it's finished. It is done. And we get to celebrate that. And then in celebrating it, we get to join it. And when we join it, there's an initiation. There's a baptism. There's a new name we're given. And in this whole thing, we become a part. We're initiated into the church. The church. The body of Christ where we belong, we're interconnected, interdependent, where we share in it, where we have ownership in it, the ongoing expression of Jesus in this world, what belongs to him, his family, his bride, his institution that he has instituted for a purpose more than just our experience or our entertainment. So, Jesus, right after the resurrection, says, go and make disciples of all nations. See, the resurrection instituted his church. Jesus said to Peter, when Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, Jesus says, yes, and on that rock, I will build my church. On that rock, I will build my church. And Peter, Peter talks about Jesus now as the cornerstone. And on that cornerstone, there's this spiritual uh, temple being built up 
didn't paste the verse that I copied. But that's okay, because it's in Peter. You can read it. The, the idea here is that the resurrection, it begins the New Testament period of God's covenant people sharing in the Spirit and being knitted together in this thing called the church. What we miss with Jesus is an office that's called the kingly office. If you read the book of Hebrews, it talks about the roles of Jesus. You know, you have different roles. I have different roles. I'm a father. You can talk about me as a father, and it's true. That's, that's what I am. It's distinct from my role as a husband. You talk about me being a husband. It's true, and it's very focused. It's different than my role as, as a father. You can talk about me as being a pastor, and it's true. There's different roles and titles that we all wear. And we talk about Jesus, and, and the book of Hebrews does, as a priest who died for, or, or who came basically as a, as a propitiation for our sins, to atone for our sins, to make up for our sins. It's true. As a prophet, to come and proclaim the kingdom, to talk about what is true, to help us understand what is really going on. But then he also came as a king. And the resurrection exalted him to the right hand of God where he is the king of the kingdom and the head of the church. Jesus said it. He says, I have been given all authority on heaven and on earth. And so he now is the king. And the king gets his way. It's a simple way of saying one of the coolest things about being a king is you get your way. What's, the, your, what's your biggest frustration at your job? You don't get your way. You, you, you put your finger on your biggest frustration. What's your biggest frustration with politics? An area where you're not getting your way. Your biggest frustration is where you're not getting your way. Even in your family with your spouse, your biggest tension point is where your spouse has a mind of her own. I'm a guy. It's okay. <laughs> His own, okay? The beauty of being a king is that you get your way. Right? Jesus has an opinion on Easter. He has an opinion about the resurrection. He has an opinion about your life and what reigns supreme in your life. What your greatest value is, the way you make decisions, what you really chase, what you really follow, Jesus has an opinion about that. Have you ever not had an opinion about anything? You have an opinion about the cologne or the perfume the person sitting next to you is wearing. You have an opinion about the music, the volume of the music. You have an opinion about parking or how the person next to you parked. You have an opinion about everything. Everyone I've ever met has an opinion about everything. Some of them matter more to us than others, but when we see something, we evaluate it, we have an opinion. Jesus is not less smart than us. He's not less caring than us. He's not more apathetic than us. He does not have less opinions of, than us. He has opinions too. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? 
Jesus has opinions. He has opinions about the church. He has opinions about the message. He has opinions about how we would come to understand him, our relationship with him, and what this thing called the church really looks like. And guess what? There's an expectation of his that his opinions hold sway. Part of being king means it's your will that is done, not the will of your subjects. I mean, we... We don't talk about this. We just gloss over this stuff. The the language of the body, that this body, the church, is animated and gets its directions by the head that is Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean for Antioch? What does that mean for the church in America? What does it mean for you as a part of the church? Do we really get our direction from the head? And if we get our direction from the head... When we're preaching the kingdom, like Paul or Jesus, does that message push right into the mouth of culture? I was walking around Ephesus going, if I was really preaching the gospel, would it affect the economy of Bend? Should it affect, I mean, have an impact on the economy of Bend, Oregon? When Paul preached, it radicalized the economy of Bend, Oregon. Not my preaching, but what about my checkbook? Ken, should the resurrection have a bearing on your budget? Should the resurrection radicalize or revolutionize your budget? Is your budget a moral and spiritual reflection of the fact that you're taking your direction from Christ who is the head and gives you new life, who has initiated you into his church and his kingdom. See, this is is what I was afraid of. It's beginning to get uncomfortable now. still time to go get the flat screen. Just drive to... Redmond. It's got to be one in Redmond. What about you? Does the, res- does the resurrection have a bearing on your relationships? On your checkbook? On your priorities? On your time? You see, if we understood the resurrection as an invitation to an initiation in a new life, listen to the way Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 5.16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no, no longer. We're not going to see this from a worldly point of view. We're not, it's not gift basket Easter anymore. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old has gone and the new has come. That's the beauty and the majesty and the excitement of Easter, of Resurrection Day. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
We have been baptized. We have been initiated onto a team. We get a jersey. It's no longer our agenda. We're no longer spectators. We are on a team. We are part of a family, a tribe, a body that has pride. If we preach resurrection, maybe the Sunday after Easter will be just as important to churchgoers or confessing Christians as Easter Sunday. Why? Because we have pride as churchgoers. We have pride as members of the body of Christ. We want to be with our team on the playing field doing the work put before us, not being entertained. We want to come to church whether our wife is dressing us or not. Our system is designed to give us exactly the results that we're getting. You ever heard that statement? It basically means if you hit a golf ball and it goes there, well, that's where you were aiming. It's, it's pretty logical. And if we have a church in America that is mired in consumerism, then then maybe it's not because we're taking our direction from the head, being animated by the head, submitting to the will of the king, looking to the authority of Christ, the one who has been resurrected from the dead, and we are disciples who choose to follow in his footsteps, die to self, live with him. But maybe in our thinking and in our preaching and in our church planning, we're... We're aimed right at consumeristic Christianity. What's fascinating is Jesus has an opinion about everything. Your relationship, frankly, will grow when you begin to ask his opinion on things. Jesus, what do you think about this? Should I really spend this or not? Should I really do this or not? Should we make a big change in our life or not? When you begin to ask those questions, instead of just going to Jesus like he's Santa Claus saying, gimme, 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 your relationship begins to change. You're asking for input. What, what's, what's your take on this? You know better than I do, Lord, what the right thing to do. What the thing that would glorify you the most would be the thing that would make me a witness to your resurrection the most. You know what that thing is the most. Please inform this decision. Jesus has an opinion about everything. He also has an opinion about the church. That's what's fascinating about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not about a bunch of weird symbols in, in the Left Behind series in Kirk Cameron. It's about Jesus the King. All throughout, laced throughout the book of Revelation is this idea that Christ is exalted that he is the lamb that was slain, that he is the king over the kingdom. It's all about his program. In the first couple chapters, there's basically a letter that goes out, and the book of Revelation is probably what's known as a circuit letter. Uh, John is writing it, exiled on this island of Patmos off the coast in the Aegean Sea, and, and he writes this letter, and it's a circuit letter, meaning he's writing it to everybody, and, and it's going to go, it's going to travel in a circuit, it's a circle letter. And, and the first place that, that whoever's taking this letter is gonna disembark is at the port city of Ephesus. Ephesus being the port city, you still go there, it's where the, 
uh, cruise ships land. The old harbor's silted in now, but it's still basically where the, the cruise... So the first letter to, to a church in the book of Revelation is to which church? Ephesus. And then it goes in a circle. And it's like, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you, Ephesus. And then I'm going to talk to you and you and Philadelphia and Laodicea. I'm going to talk to you churches and I'm going to affirm what is good and I'm going to call out what is bad. I'm going to make known my will. I'm going to share my opinions because it's not about your experience. It's about your health. It's about you living in this new life and having this dynamic relationship with me as the head and that all of this would work together. So I'm going to communicate my opinions for your health. And so what we don't find in here is anything about style. Nothing about style. When you go to a church in America, you know the top three values? Preaching, worship, kids ministry. What dictates whether someone will stay at a church or leave? Preaching, worship, kids' ministry. It's not this clean cut, but experience, experience, and experience. Or style, style, style. I know that's really putting it on the extreme edge. But what do you care most about in your family? I mean, when my kids are watching the TV and I see their brains like, like, like dripping out of their ears, you know what I mean? And if I turn it off and they start kicking and screaming, none of that matters to me, their experience. All I care about is their health. When Jesus looks at Antioch, he doesn't care about our experience. This isn't a, a spectator sport. All he cares about is our health. Dictated by our ability to be in his will, living out this resurrection life in fellowship, in unity with him. So these seven letters, what's fascinating is there's nothing about style or experience in it. Everything about substance. Everything about heart. Let's, uh, I want to read something and, and then explain it and then we'll close. Here's First Peter. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everything changes. Now listen to this again. This is a famous church theologian, Watchman Nee. Our old history ends with the cross. Our new history begins with the resurrection. Kierkegaard says this about marriage. Marriage is and remains the most important voyage of discovery a human being undertakes. So here's the pivot within that last quote. Why is marriage so transformative. Because you become one with another. And by becoming one with the other, you exchange independence for unity. In that covenant, 
a part of your individual autonomous self dies so that a new part of your shared existence can live. The definition of a good marriage, a united one, a healthy one. Definition of a bad marriage, an unhealthy marriage, too much self remains, not enough shared unity in the exchange. Does that make sense? By the way, I was going to recommend two books. Um, Timothy Keller, probably one of my favorite pastors out there today, uh, just came out with a book on marriage. I hate marriage books until Timothy Keller came out with a book on marriage. Now, all of a sudden, marriage books are the coolest thing going. Um, you, we got like 40 of these at the book cart, so you can pick one up after the service. If you want to understand your relationship with Christ, understand your marriage better. You want to understand your marriage better? Understand your relationship with Christ better. They're a direct synonym in a whole lot of ways. Paul even talks about it that way in the book of Ephesians. So the meaning of marriage, go pick this up. Um, also, uh, something I spent this weekend thinking about, reflecting on, um, but Karen Spears Zacharias has a book, A Silence of Mockingbirds. It's about uh, child abuse, child ne- neglect in America. Um, Karen actually attends Antioch when she's in town. Um, I want you to pick this up just because if we really understand the transformative nature of Christ in our life, there's a direct correspondence to how we speak up for the weak and the voiceless. Um, anyways, so here's the deal. We get this exchange. Our old history ends with the cross. Our new history begins with resurrection. Marriage is and remains the most important voyage of discovery a human being can undertake. There's a covenant that happens here. There's an initiation that happens here. When you become a Christian, there is a part of you that dies. It dies. It doesn't get covered over by the cross we wear. You know, what, you know what I'm saying in that image? It dies and is replaced by a newness of life that comes with Christ. Galatians chapter 2. Turn there real quick if you want. Mark this. Go back. Read it for the year. Memorize it. It's an easy one to memorize. But if we understand this verse, we can't remain the same. Galatians 2, verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be attained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is the hope of resurrection? Newness of life. What is the hope of resurrection? That we can be reconciled to God. We can be redeemed out of sin and the penalty of sin. 
and that death no longer has its sting. It's no longer this heavy cloud that hangs over us, but we have the promise, the hope of eternal life found with God in Christ. Resurrection Sunday means I can trade this broken life where I try to pretend to be somebody, where I struggle with narcissism and then alternately struggle with insecurities and self-doubt, that I can trade the lot of that trying to be something that I'm not, pull myself up by my own bootstraps for a life where I am united with Christ. I die over here so that I can get unity. I lose autonomy so that I can get community and fellowship with Christ in the Spirit. And in doing so, as a disciple of Christ, everything changes. I'm an active participant in his kingdom, in his church, in his body, in his family, enacting his will as a witness in this life. All I have is his. All I have is underneath his opinions where he directs and commands and encourages me to act in such a way that will bring him glory. So everything I do is spiritual and moral. All the interactions I have, all the checks I write, all the decisions I make, whether I value church or not, is a spiritual, moral decision that reflects in some way my relationship with Christ. I long for the day that this church would look like one of the football teams that Bill Parcells coaches. You always know the teams in sports where the people on the team don't really value the shared identity. And you always know the teams where the people on the team value, submit to, and care about the shared team identity. The way we act in America about church, how lackadaisical we are, how commonplace we make it, how for granted we take it, really belies the fact that we don't see our relationship with Christ as an initiation into his church. We see it as a religion and as a cultural thing that we're a part of amongst all the other priorities we have as Christians. Can do more, be more, hope more. And I long for the day that the week after Easter, church would win, Christ would win, resurrection would win just as much as it looks like it does on Easter Sunday. Jesus, we come to you, we commit to you, we surrender to you. Please radicalize our faith. Please radicalize this church. Please enact your will. Fight for your will in our, our church and in our lives. Break us if you must. Destroy us if you have to, as long as you're there to pick us up again. May everything except for the resurrected life, the newness of life we get in you seem like vanity to us. Let us not run after false idols. Chase empty pleasures. Fill us with godly desires, the kinds of desires that, that lead us to you. And we pray that in your precious name. Amen.